Hello, everyone, and welcome to All Shall Be Well. I'm Anne Boyd, host of All Shall Be Well, a podcast of InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions. And I'm here to welcome you to our special episode honoring Earth Day, which in 2022 falls on April 22nd. Our interview with climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe is so appropriate for this week that we wanted to share it again today. Catherine's book, Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World, is an excellent resource for furthering one's thinking about the privilege of caring for our planet, and this conversation with her is a great way to get the ball rolling. So... If you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. We hope you enjoy this episode, which originally aired on December 13th, 2021. Let me invite you into a conversation with climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe, author of the book, Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World. I have to tell you, I was very excited for this conversation. I've been a fan of Catherine's ever since we published a couple of interviews with her at The Well in 2016, and I've always been so inspired by the way she has pursued her calling in climate science. The book was life-changing for me. Catherine's message is so empowering around the issue of climate change, and she offers encouragement and practical ideas without any guilt, which I really appreciated. But even more significant was seeing Catherine as an example of a person who is truly willing to reach across differences to bring about change. In our conversation, you'll hear us discuss these bigger issues of calling and integration and respect for others. And you'll also hear Catherine's genius trick for grocery shopping that helps her to save time, waste less food, and create more delicious meals. I really love the way Catherine connects big picture questions with small, meaningful changes that we can make in life. So let me tell you a little bit more about her. In addition to serving as chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy, Catherine Hayhoe is the Endowed Professor in Public Policy and Public Law and Paul W. Horn Distinguished Professor at Texas Tech University. She served as a lead author for the second, third, and fourth U.S. National Climate Assessment and hosts the PBS digital series Global Weirding. She is the Climate Ambassador for the World Evangelical Alliance and has been named one of Time's 100 Most Influential People, Fortune's 50 Greatest Leaders, and Foreign Policy's 100 Leading Global Thinkers. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here with us. Catherine, thank you for being on the podcast with All Shall Be Well. It's so great to have you here. Thank you for having me. And I think I understand that you have an university background. Is that right? I do. So when I was applying for graduate schools, uh, somebody told me that you're supposed to apply for 
three sort of above the level where you think you're going to get in, three at the level, and three below. So I went to the bank, and back in those days, you had to get money orders to apply for graduate school. That's how long ago it was. And (laughs) I actually got 10 money orders. So I applied to my three, three, and three, and then I had one money order left over. And so I thought, well, why don't I apply to one more school? And it would be great to have somewhere that was within driving distance of home. And I'm from Toronto, of course. Mm -hmm. So I looked around and there was really good programs in climate science or atmospheric science at two different schools, at Ohio State and Mm -hmm. at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. So I did a little bit more digging because they both had these great programs. And it turned out that uh, OSU had a water ski team, which I was really into when I was younger. But (laughs) the University of Illinois had a sailing club, which I was also into, Plus, they had a graduate university Christian fellowship chapter. Wow. And the grad IV chapter was literally what tipped the balance in the favor of Illinois. I ended up applying there. And unbeknownst to me, they had just hired a new chair for the department who was so new that he wasn't even on their website. And when I went for my interview in Illinois, um, because in my field, you generally are, are brought in to do interviews with all the faculty. I met him and it was just the perfect meeting of minds. He was the absolute perfect advisor for me. So I ended up in Illinois. I uh, immediately plugged into a small group within InterVarsity. By the second year, I was the large group coordinator. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yes. Um, And so I was in charge of our large group meetings, organizing the speakers and getting the music set up and greeting people and hosting the meetings. Mm -hmm. And in one of the first meetings of of my second year, I saw that my roommate was sitting behind, beside somebody at the back who was new, and my roommate was somebody who would never talk to somebody she didn't know. Like, she just would not do that. So I knew that she was not going to greet him. So I figured that I should. So I went over and I greeted him, and he married me. <gasps> That's him! <laughs> now, there was some interval in between those two events. Sure. <laughs> so InterVarsity is actually responsible for bringing my husband and I together. Wow, what a great story. Well, it's so, I love having that shared background and hearing about your um, your roots. And especially because to be honest, I'm a little starstruck talking with you after seeing your interview on Jimmy Kimmel, and which my 15 year old loved so much. She was like, can I stay home from school today and, and meet Catherine Hayhoe? <laughs> I said, well, I'll, I'll show you a picture, but I just feel really um, lucky to be talking to you. And I'm so glad that you've had these great opportunities to get your work out into the world. Um, and your book is amazing. I've been talking with all my family and friends about it over Thanksgiving. So I'd love to um, get into talking about your, your book. It's called Saving Us. A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in the World. And I'd love to talk just about the title. What does it mean? And what do you hope readers will hear? Yes. So it's called Saving Us because it isn't about saving the planet. Hmm. The planet is going to be orbiting the sun long after we are gone. And so often this is talked about being about the environment or about the planet as if we somehow have to choose between ourselves and the planet kind of in a similar way that people often mistakenly, I think, talk of ourselves as Christians, like we have to choose between what we want to do versus what God wants us to do. Hmm. But we believe, and it says in the Bible, that uh, God took out our heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh, that we received a new spirit, that we still need software updates, so to speak, but the hardware update is fully complete. And so Hmm. it's about bringing our our, um, 
mindsets and our ways of thinking and our attitudes and perspectives in line, not just with what God wants for us, but what with our new what our new heart and our new spirit actually wants too. And so it's a lot less of a fight when you realize that you really want what God wants, but you've got these old ways of thinking. So you're not fighting against yourself. Well, in the same way with um, thinking about this planet that we live on, people often think about it as people or the planet, the environment or the economy. And the reality is we cannot float around in outer space without the resources that this planet provides. This planet was handcrafted for life. It provides everything that we need. And we and the economy cannot float around without what this planet provides, including everything from the air we breathe and the water we drink to the food we eat to the resources we use to make everything we have. So that's why I called the book Saving Us because it isn't about saving the planet, it's literally about saving us. And I was a bit worried about that originally because I thought, does that sound a little heretical, saving us? So I asked my husband, well, what do you think? And he's like, well, you're not talking about spiritual salvation, you're talking about physical salvation, about how it's really about human civilization as we know it. And the Bible's very clear that God gives us responsibility. In Genesis 1, it talks about having responsibility over every living thing on this planet. There's all kinds of parables about being given the talents and what do you do with them? Are you a good steward of the resources you've been given? And that's really what we're talking about here. God entrusted this planet into our care and it is up to us to protect, to care for, to keep, to have responsibility over for, to tend, to be good stewards of everything on this planet, including us. It isn't just about the planet and the animals and the plants and the environment or people. We're living people too. It makes so much sense the way you describe it. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, in the book, you give so much excellent information about climate change and conscious choices we can make. But the main thing you emphasize is the need to talk with others about climate change. So tell us a little bit about why this is important, how you decided to focus on that as kind of one of the main topics of the book. So the reason I wrote the book was because I didn't have a resource that I could give people that answered the two most frequent questions that I was starting to get from anyone, anywhere. Hmm. Whether I was speaking at a Christian college or a group of business people or policy experts or at a university or um, students, whoever I was speaking to, I started to see the same questions come up again and again. And these two questions were, what gives you hope? And how do I talk about this? Hmm. How do I talk about it to my parents or my roommate or my colleague or my neighbor or somebody at church or my elected official? How do I have that conversation? And I had already done a TED talk at that point, I did a TED talk back in 2018, which I called the most important thing we can do about climate change is talk about it. Because mm -hmm. when you look at polling data, it turns out that across the whole US, three quarters of people say, sure, climate change is real. Now I know that we have many loud voices saying it isn't, but those loud voices are literally only 7% of the population. 7% of the population mm -hmm. is the tail wagging the dog. <laughs> and I hear from those people all the time on social media. They're very loud, but they're only 7%. Sure. So 75% of us say, yeah, sure, it's real. And then there's a small number in between who aren't sure. 70% mm -hmm. of us are worried about climate change. 83% of moms are worried. 84% of young people are worried, really worried about it. But less than a third of us even talk about it even occasionally. So mm. if we're really worried about something, we're just stuffing it down. That is not healthy at all because, first of all, 
we don't, we, we can't do anything with our fear. It just paralyzes us and we're not getting anything done because what's the catalyst to action? The catalyst to doing anything at all is talking about it, right? Right. It's the way we interact with each other as human beings talking. And when I say talking, of course, sometimes it could be posting on social media or it could be writing or it could be mm -hmm. creating something or it could simply be doing something where other people see you do it. That's a way of, you know, talking or interacting as well. Sure. That's how we communicate with each other. That is the window into our mind. So if we don't talk about it, why would we care? And if we don't care, why would we ever do anything to fix it? Talking mm. about it knocks over the first domino in the long chain that leads to climate action. And that's directly connected to the first question, because where do we find hope? We find hope in action. Mm. We find hope in love. And people often ask, you know, what's your favorite verse in the Bible or the verse that's most relevant to what you do? And they might expect me to talk about verses about stewardship or care for creation or nature. But I say, no, to me personally, those are not the two most relevant verses. For me, the two most important verses that really sort of guide my mindset um, and my perspective on this issue are, first of all, in Timothy, where um, Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, God has not given you a spirit of fear. So we have a litmus test when we feel fear and we feel fear at both ends of the political spectrum. There's people who are very afraid of what climate change will bring, but then there's people who are very afraid of what climate solutions look like because we're being fed false information all the time. Like mm -hmm. President Biden won't let you eat meat anymore or Bernie Sanders wants to abort all the babies or <clears throat> climate <laughs> solutions will take away all your personal liberties. We're being mm -hmm. fed all this false information all the time to make people fearful, to deliberately paralyze us. And we're being fed the same false information about COVID. The vaccines mm -hmm. will alter your DNA so God won't let you right. into heaven. I mean, all of this is fear-based messaging to paralyze us. And Timothy, in Timothy, Paul says, it's not from God. If it mm -hmm. induces fear, it is not from God. So we have a litmus test right away. We can say fear, not from God. But the verse doesn't stop there. It goes on. It says, what is from God? God has given you a spirit of power, which is sort of an old-fashioned way to put that you are empowered, that you're able to mm -hmm. act. The opposite of paralysis is the, able to, the ability to act, to have agency. So God has given you the ability to act. He's given you a spirit of love, which means you can think of and care for others and prioritize their needs. And as a scientist, the last part's my favorite, a sound mind to make good decisions based on the information that he's given you. Some of which comes from scientists who study God's creation. Mm -hmm. so, so that sort of puts the fear and paralysis versus the love um, motivated action informed by a sound mind into perspective. And then the other verse that I bring into it is in Romans where it talks about where hope comes from. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't begin with positive circumstances. It doesn't begin with everything working out. It doesn't begin with the guarantee of a positive future here on this earth. It begins with suffering. And it says suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. And elsewhere in the New Testament, it talks about how, and Paul specifically talks about how we are to love others as we've been loved. So it all goes together. God's love has been poured out in our hearts. It has empowered us to act with a sound mind so that we can share that love with others. And when we act, because sharing God's love with others requires us to act, mm -hmm. when we act, that's where we find hope because we're working together.
And that really is the metaphor of how we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be working together. We're supposed to be a body. We're not supposed to be a bunch of lone rangers. We're supposed to be acting together to be God's hands and feet and voice in the world. And today, with the way that climate change disproportionately affects the poorest and most vulnerable people in the world, and that's why I became a climate scientist myself is when I realized that, today I truly believe that a failure to act on climate change is a failure to love. Hmm. You, you, you frame this all in a way that makes so much sense um, connected with our faith. And I know from your um, great interview that you had with Krista Tippett mm -hmm. that you have a background where it was pretty natural to, uh, to connect your, your understanding of science and care for the earth with the Bible and Christian faith. So I know that's not true for every Christian. And what I'm wondering is how how have you gone about creating materials or putting together ideas so that it makes sense for people um, where it's not the first instinct? That's a great question. So I grew up in a home where uh, my father was a Bible teacher in our local church, but he was also a science teacher. Hmm. And I was introduced to the idea as a child, that make, a concept that makes total sense when you think about it this way, which is if we believe as Christians that, that the Bible is God's inspired word and that God created this universe, which is what we believe as Christians, mm -hmm. they both came from the same place. So how could studying one possibly be in conflict with studying the other? What a concept. It makes now, sense. It does. Now, of course, of course, we know that there are times when they appear to be in conflict with each other. But if we understand they both come from the same source, they can't fundamentally or intrinsically be in conflict with each other. Rather, we are the ones whose limited understanding is actually sort of leading to this perceived conflict. And so sometimes with some humility, and some open-mindedness, we can figure out that maybe there were some aspects of the science that we didn't quite understand yet. And when we do, it brings it into harmony with what we believed from the Bible. Or maybe our view of the Bible is informed by some very thick cultural glasses that have caused us to distort or limit what the Bible says in some way. And if we're willing to take those cultural glasses off, we might see that really there isn't that conflict. And in fact, in history, there wasn't. It's just something that's arisen fairly recently in time. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, I think there are things that we really don't understand that I look forward to understanding once we get to heaven. I sort of have a yeah. long list in my head of things I want to understand. <laughs> but really, overall, it's our attitude that matters. The attitude of humility and the attitude of recognizing that if they both come from the same place, one is not a threat to the other. They both must be consistent with each other. And if they, if they don't appear to be consistent, the fault lies with us, not with either the Bible or the universe or science, but rather right here with our limited understanding. So, um, so where do I often begin with people? Well, I first of all, people often say, well, if we just get everyone on the same page on the science, then we can fix climate change. Right. And I said, you know what? First of all, we don't have time to do that. Climate change is extremely urgent. And every year that passes without significant action closes the window of opportunity a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, it's not like there's a magic threshold or anything, but the more carbon we produce, the worse we are. It's like the more packs of cigarettes you smoke, the greater the dangers and the risks. Sure. And not only that, I say, but you know what? To agree, for example, that humans digging up and burning coal, gas, and oil are producing heat-trapping gases that are building up in the atmosphere, wrapping an extra blanket around the planet, causing the planet to warm. To agree on that, we don't have to agree that the world is any more than 300 years old. And as far as I know, everybody already agrees on that. <laughs> that makes sense. 
And in fact, here's the interesting thing. Talking to, uh, my husband suggested I do this. He said, well, have you ever created, because he said, I know that you show ice core data that shows carbon dioxide levels and temperature levels in the past. Have you ever created one that goes back 6,000 years? And I said, no, I haven't done that. Because yeah. scientifically, there isn't really a particular reason. There's no particular record that's exactly 6,000 years old. But I said, why not? So I created a record of temperature and carbon dioxide levels, carbon dioxide being the primary heat trapping gas that we humans are adding to the atmosphere. There's a naturally occurring level of CO2, and we've already increased that natural level by 50%, and we're heading towards a doubling pretty quickly. Right. So I created this figure, and it's actually completely stunning because over thousands of years, all you see is a pretty, pretty flat line that is very, very, very slowly, gradually decreasing. Because according to orbital cycles, we should be heading into another ice age sometime in the distant future. Don't worry about mm -hmm. it. Not now. Sure. <laughs> like 1,500 years from now or so. so. So our global average temperature was very, very slowly, gradually going down until the 1700s when it pretty much started to shoot straight up again. So wow. if we believe that the Earth is, is, is young, then what has happened today has absolutely no precedent at any time in the entire history of the Earth. And we should be even more concerned about climate change, not less. The, uh, this is amazing. The one of the things that I admire most about you is you have such um, a humility and a generous view toward people who disagree with you. You know, that even if you don't um, see eye to eye on every particular about politics, you, you, you view them generously and um, kind of give that, say, okay, well, given that, let's, let's try to find a practical solution. So how did, how did you develop this? It's just, it's really amazing. Well, um, I don't, honestly, I don't think it comes, it comes, um, I don't think it comes from me. I think it really mm -hmm. comes, it's an expression of God's love because I can be just as judgmental and short-tempered and frustrated as the next person. <laughs> um, and I certainly have had my moments. Um, but really recognizing that, um, first of all, what's at stake here is, again, as one of my colleagues put it, he said, we have three choices. We can cut our carbon emissions, we can build resilience to the impacts we can't avoid, or we can suffer. Mm. We're gonna do some of each. The question is what the mix is gonna be. Because yeah. if we don't act, we're gonna to have to prepare a lot more and there's gonna be a lot more suffering. And the suffering is falling on the poorest and most vulnerable people. So mm -hmm. first of all, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I'm willing to walk around a lot of mines uh, buried minds to get there. I'm not mm -hmm. on a crusade to convince everybody to accept every aspect of science. We'll have plenty of time to argue that out after we fix climate change. I'm just trying to get people to realize that who they already are, and especially if they're a believer, who they already are is already the perfect person to care. If mm -hmm. you already have a new heart, if God has already poured out his love into your heart, if God has already um, forgiven you, Mm -hmm. um, and if God has already called you to care for and love our sisters and our brothers um, and every and have responsibility over every living thing on this planet, well, that makes you the perfect person to care. And if you don't care, it's not because you're wrong or you're bad or you lack the, the, the right morals or you need to be corrected or you need to be changed. It's simply because, as it says in the book of James, you're like the man who looked in the mirror and then went away and forgot who he is. Mm -hmm. And so... I'm not trying to change anybody's heart or mind. I feel like that's up to God. All I'm doing is I'm yeah. just holding up the mirror to try to remind people who they are. And some of the people who look in the mirror might, might not 
see someone who cares about this issue. Mm -hmm. um, some people don't want to look in the mirror, <laughs> but a lot of people, when we're reminded of who we truly are, of what, what our heart really is, of the fact that our statement of faith is not written by political ideology, our statement of faith is written by the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, that that's where I've I've seen so much so much encouragement um, and so much um, positive response that really sort of drowns out um, the massive amounts of hate that I get from people who refuse to look in the mirror because they're afraid of what they would see if they looked in the mirror. Yeah, what I hear is you that you have such a clear sense of the calling that God has given you, mm -hmm. um, ways that you are using your education, your background, your studies um, to, to do his work in the world. And this is something we talk about calling a lot at The Well on this podcast and in articles. Um, and so I'm especially interested to hear about this and how did you, you talked a little bit um, about this, but how did you develop your own, your sense of calling? How did you discern um, what God was putting into your, into your heart? Well, a lot of it is sort of in retrospect because mm -hmm. I grew up, as so many of us do, in a Christian home, thinking that there's almost like tiers of God's service, like levels, you know. Sure. My, my parents were missionaries. My mm -hmm. uncle was a mission doctor. You know, I grew up reading stories about, you know, Amy Carmichael and <laughs> Elizabeth Kuhn yeah. books and stories about people who dedicated their entire life in the mission field. So I sort of had implicitly, not so much explicitly, but implicitly this idea that, okay, so if you are, you know, dedicating your entire life to either being in the medical profession or better yet in the medical profession in a poor country, or if you're actually helping people, you know, dig wells or grow food, or if you're actively spreading the gospel, then, you know, that's like tier one. And then, right. you know, if, if you're not in tier one, well, then you can at least um, get a good job and support your church and support, you know, mission activity and, and, um, you know, help out at the food bank and sponsor mm -hmm. a child with world vision, that sort of tier two. And so I remember thinking as a student, I was thinking, you know, I really have no inclination towards the medical field. I faint at the sight of blood, I guess, you know, and I grew up as a missionary kid, but that just really wasn't the, I, I really appreciated the experience, but I didn't see that life as a life that really fit who I was and what I did mm -hmm. and what my interests were. So I sort of almost like resigned myself to tier two, if that makes sense. I oh, thought, well, the best yeah. I can do is I can use, you know, I'm good at science. So I'm going to study astronomy and physics. I'm going to become an astrophysicist and at least study the wonders of God's creation. And one of the things my dad would do when we were young is because he loved astronomy as a science teacher, he would create these slideshows back in the day when people used slides. And he would go around to churches and Christian camps and Christian organizations, and he would show people the wonders of the universe and he would call it God's art gallery. And people are just amazed to see what God created in nature, in creation. And that's that's a way of, I think, glorifying God. And so that's what I was thinking I was going to be doing with my life, was studying God's creation in, in the universe. But when I was almost finished my undergraduate degree, I needed an extra class to finish my breadth requirements. And there was this brand new class on climate change over in the geography department. I thought, well, that looks interesting. Why not take it? Mm -hmm. So, and, and growing up in Canada, you know, I learned about climate change. I learned about deforestation. I learned about air pollution. I learned about biodiversity loss. I learned about all of these issues that I consider to be environmental issues mm -hmm. that environmentalists care about and the rest of us wish them well. So I didn't right. see a conflict with Christian values and caring about the earth, because obviously if we believe the earth is God's gift to us, then we should be good stewards of it. But I thought of it as, well, that's what those people do. And if I'm not, don't really feel that I'm that person, that's not what I do. 
But in that class, I was completely shocked to find out, first of all, that um, climate modeling, which is what I now do, is all physics and even some astronomy, the same mm. physics and astronomy I was already learning. I don't know what I thought it was, but I just didn't think it was that. Um, but what really changed the trajectory of my whole life was when I found out that climate change is not only an environmental issue. It is, but climate change directly affects people's health. Yeah. Burning fossil fuels creates so much air pollution that it prematurely kills 10 million people a year. That's wow. double the number of COVID every single year from burning fossil fuels. And people are like, oh, no, it's too expensive to stop using fossil fuels. I'm like, oh, so 10 million lives a year is worth it? Right. I mean, as a Christian, how can we condone that? And I'm not talking, of course, about pulling the plug on fossil fuels immediately, because that would also sure. result in suffering. But I am talking about valuing human life as well as dollars when we make our decisions about where we're going in the future mm -hmm. and how we can transition to clean energy sources, which we have abundantly today, which we didn't have 50 years ago. So I learned that it affects our health, that it affects our water availability and our food. Climate change is already increasing the economic gap between the haves and the have-nots, between the richest and poorest people on the planet. Climate change disproportionately affects people who are already marginalized and vulnerable, especially women in poor countries. Um, I live in the US now and you know, black and brown neighborhoods, low-income neighborhoods that have been redlined for the last century, they're more vulnerable when heat and flood come. We know that mm -hmm. indigenous peoples who have lost so much of their rights in their land, they are disproportionately affected by climate change. Climate change is profoundly unfair. It affects the least of these. And you know, in Micah, it says that we're just asked to love mercy and um, do justice and walk humbly. And I thought, how can I as a Christian not having the skill set that you have, you know, serendipitously having that skill set that you need to study this, how can I not do everything I can to help fix this urgent global problem? Because it's so urgent, surely we'll fix it soon. And then I can go back to studying astrophysics, right? <laughs> that was a very long time ago, but that's how I became and why I became a climate mm. scientist it is quite literally because I'm a Christian. And so I felt my heart calling me in that direction, but I still didn't see it as a calling because you know, again, like my husband, who is, he was a linguistics professor, but he was also teaching at our local church. And then he became a pastor and he's a Christian radio host. He writes Christian books. And I was thinking, well, you know, that's like tier one and I'm still sort of tier two. But mm -hmm. then the more I started to get into it, and the more I started to look back on what I was doing, the more I started to realize, no, I'm doing exactly what God called me to do. And here's the important lesson. The desires of my heart are the desires of my new heart that God has given me. And so my interest in science, my desire to study the universe, um, my love for people and wanting to help them through what I do studying climate change, all of those are gifts directly from God. And when we express the, the talents and the interests and the abilities that God has given us, we, there is no tier one and tier two and tier three. There's just, that's exactly what God created us to do is to express what he put in our heart that is totally different than anybody else. You know, that whole idea of the body, you know, the whole like tier one, tier two, tier three thing. It's like, it, it's imagining that God wants everybody to be, you know, everybody to be a heart or everybody to be a lung. Sure. That's not the way the body works. God needs somebody mm -hmm. to be the fingernail. <laughs> God needs somebody to be the nervous system, you know? God, and God created us that way to express our abilities that he gave us. And so in retrospect now, I'm absolutely convinced that I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing because my heart and God's heart are aligned. And the interesting thing is not only am I making a difference with climate change, but I've started to even hear from people who say, you know, I've gotten so discouraged with the church. I just feel like the church, 
is not expressing any fruits of the spirit. There's no love. There's no concern for the things that, that I'm concerned of. But because I've seen you expressing what you believe through your science and through caring about climate change, I'm going to go back and I'm going to keep trying to look for a church where I feel like I could mm -hmm. fit in. Um, and I've had people even say, you know, I, didn't, I don't share your faith, but I can see how it motivates what you're doing. And so it isn't just about convincing Christians to care about climate change. It's about showing non-Christians that we, there really are Christians who can be recognized for their love yeah. for others. Um, rather than, unfortunately, today, so many people who call themselves Christians are recognized by exactly the opposite. Right. Yeah. Well, I I love it that you are having an increasingly wide platform. And um, I have to tell you that when I saw that interview with Jimmy Kimmel, I was I had my whole family watch it. And I started crying because it's, I mean, it's super funny. It's not sad, <laughs> but you, I was like, look, Kevin Hayhoe is doing the, the world changer thing that, you know, it's part of our university mission statement mm -hmm. that we want to develop world, world changers. And you are having an opportunity to share that good work with the whole world. And it just made me feel so happy and so glad that, the Lord is leading you into so many great opportunities. Well, and I have to say that InterVarsity was incredibly helpful with that because, as I mentioned earlier, I was part of our Grad IV chapter at Illinois. And um, I had already decided to go into atmospheric or climate science, but I still sort of viewed the faith part of my life and the academic part of my life as two separate silos, so to speak. And, and Grad IV was really key to helping me start to bring those together because mm. we had speaker after speaker after speaker at our large group session who were faculty members or academics or researchers who were Christians. And every single one of them, whether they were in advertising or computer science or theology or ethnomusicology, <laughs> what, mm -hmm. whatever field they were in, every one of them consistently and thoughtfully shared how their faith informed and motivated their field of study. Mm -hmm. And it was such a valuable experience. I just wish that everybody could have that because it really helped me grow much more deeply and unite those two sides of my life together. It sort of started the knitting process, so to speak, the knitting together process, a yeah. process which I feel like I'm still continuing in. I'll probably continue until I die. Um, you know, every new thing I learned from the science is something to sort of try to incorporate with my faith and every new thought I have um, in terms of um, really, you know, like I said, updating my the software of my mind <laughs> to fit my mm -hmm. hardware is a way that I can use to relate to how I think about my work and my science. But InterVarsity began that knitting together process and it was so important. It was so valuable because we really need to be our whole selves wherever we are. And too often mm -hmm. we're only part of ourselves in some, you know, when we go to church, that's part of us. When we're with our friends, that's part of us. When we're at our job, that's part of us. But we need to bring all of ourselves to the table, our whole self to the table, to really reach, I think, our full potential in each sphere. And it can be hard because sometimes when you bring your whole self to the table in different spheres, you know, it can it can lead to uh, rejection. Like in science, you know, just the science. We don't want to talk about right. how it makes you feel. We don't want to talk about why it matters. We just want to talk about the science. But increasingly, we're realizing that we have to talk about how it makes you feel because today, like I was saying before, many people are just almost paralyzed with anxiety over the facts that the science are sharing. And so just being able to relate to people on an emotional level, um, as well as on a factual level, I think is absolutely essential um, to figuring out how we're going to fix this thing together. Yeah. 
And that's really what the book is about too, right? Yeah, it really is. It really is. And in fact, um, as I was reading it, I was thinking about um, our listeners who are women in academia and faculty, um, people in the professions, you know, women who live very full lives. And it's hard to feel like you have to add another thing. You know, I have to care more about climate change now. But when you talk about it, there's this quality that you have where instead of, it's not a list of things to do, it's more about growing a relationship of love with the earth that God has given us. And so, I mean, is that how you would describe it? Or how, how do you, how do you get away from this, um, this view that I just have to add more tasks oh, to my list? Totally. Yeah. Um, I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. So here's the way we think about it. We think about, you know, I already have so many buckets in my life I'm trying to fill, right? Yeah. Uh, or so many balls in the air I'm trying to keep up in the air. And I already have more than I can handle. And along comes this new one and I just don't have the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is often the way we think about it. But climate change is not an extra bucket or an extra ball. Climate change is the whole in all of our existing buckets. So if we're worried about our kids' health, climate change is making it worse. If we're worried about the safety of our home with wildfires or floods, climate change is making it worse. If we're worrying about paying the bills, climate change is hiking those bills already, especially our insurance bills. I've already mm-hmm. gone way up in some parts of the country, like way up. If we're worried about you know the future of our children, um, if we're worried about the future of our students, if mm-hmm. we're worried about political instability because a lot of our students in the U.S. come from other countries, well, climate change is fueling political instability as well. It's not causing these problems, but it's making them worse. The military actually has a phrase for it. They call climate change a threat multiplier. Hmm. So we don't care about climate change as an extra bucket. It is quite literally the whole in whatever other bucket we already care about and we're already working on to try to fill. We cannot do that if we don't patch the hole in the bucket. And so that's why organizations like World Vision, or Plant with Purpose, or Arasha, which is a Christian conservation organization, or Tear Fund. That's why those types of organizations recognize that climate change is so important. They've started to talk about it quite a bit because it's the hole in their bucket. It is Mm. the giant hole in the bucket. But the good thing is, is that climate solutions can not only patch the hole, but can also add add to fill the the bucket. Mm. So, on, on a you know on a on a national or international scale, um, uh, World Vision has a man called Tony Renato who is an agronomist who's worked with World Vision for many decades, and he's worked in some of the poorest areas in Sub-Saharan Africa where people have problems growing enough food to feed their families, let alone support themselves. Mm-hmm. And when they can't feed their families, they pull the kids out of school because they need the kids. They don't have the resources else elsewise. And if they can't feed their families and someone comes along and offers to marry one of their daughters, that's how child marriages are already on the increase in many of those areas because climate change is taking their naturally occurring droughts and floods, which occur naturally all the time, and it's increasing the variability. It's making the dry spells longer and more irregular. And then when the rain comes, it just pours down in a downpour and floods everything and then it just evaporates again. There's nothing left. So Tony's been working in some of these communities for almost 40 years, and he realized that if you plant trees alongside and in between the crops, those trees help to retain water and nutrients in the soil, and they actually significantly increase crop production. 
So he encouraged, he got a couple of, of, of farmers who figured they had nothing to lose to work with him and do this. And then they started to see the improvements. And so their neighbors said, oh, well, maybe we should try it too. Mm -hmm. And now Tony's gotten to the point now where so many farmers are doing it, that they're growing enough food to feed 2.5 million more people. Wow. And here's the crazy thing. All those trees take up carbon from the atmosphere. Sure. So sure, it's a climate solution, but the most immediate solution was that it was actually producing more food for people who need it. Okay, mm -hmm. so let's bring it right down to Chicago. So in Chicago, which I know quite well, I've worked with the city of Chicago, mm -hmm. there's extreme heat issues in the summer, there's air pollution issues, and there's flooding issues. Yes. All of those are big problems in Chicago, and they're a lot worse in the low-income neighborhoods in the south mm -hmm. side of Chicago than they are in the north. Mm -hmm. In fact, during a heat wave, some of those um, lower income neighborhoods that are just full of concrete, no green spaces, no trees, no parks, except for around the university, there's like this little oasis of green in Hyde Park around the university and then everywhere else right. is just concrete. It can be 15 degrees Fahrenheit hotter oh my gosh. than the wealthier neighborhoods. And so mm -hmm. because of that, there's all kinds of health crises because extreme heat exacerbates people's health ailments. People can't pay their AC bills. People don't want to open the window at night to cool off because they don't feel safe. So there's a lot of heat emergencies and extreme mm -hmm. heat also spawns violence. It, it, mm -hmm. it affects our body such that we get much more short-tempered and irritable and interpersonal violence and domestic violence against women increases in extreme heat. Mm -hmm. Then there's the fact that when um, the underpasses flood, the CTA can't run its buses and a lot of lower income people depend on public transportation to get around. When it's too hot, the metro rails warp and they have to shut down the rapid transit tr trains and, and try to bus people, which is a lot more expensive for the city and takes a lot longer as well. And then there's the whole issue of air pollution. Again, it's a problem for everybody, especially for people who have kids who have asthma, but in low income neighborhoods, you know, there's a much greater chance of kids having asthma there because they've been exposed to pollution since they were born because pollution levels are much higher in the lower income areas of the city that don't have the political clout to say, hey, we don't want that factory there. We don't right. want, you know, all these intersections with these cars. So when we take action in our own city, we can actually improve the air quality that our kids breathe, like, you know, converting our school buses in our district to electric buses or outlawing idling, which produces huge amounts of air pollution and also mm. wastes gas, or helping to plant trees and parks and green spaces in lower income neighborhoods that clean up the air, that protect from flood because you have areas that absorb the water instead of it just running off, that improve mm -hmm. people's physical health and their mental health. Oh, and they take up carbon too. <laughs> right, right. That's sort of like, you, you know, that's the last thing on the list. So, and then, you know, our diet. We, we eat a lot more meat than we need to. And the cheap meat that we eat, especially like if you go to McDonald's to get a hamburger or something like that, that's the meat that's absolutely worst. It's the worst for animals, it's the worst for climate change, it's the worst for pollution, and it's the worst for our bodies as well. Mm -hmm. So as moms, you know, we care a lot about what our kids eat. I spent a lot of time, especially in the early years, making baby food and, you know, yep. looking at nutrition and things like that. And so really recognizing that um, first of all, investing in local farmers and really making an effort to get a lot less meat, but higher quality meat from people who grow it in a humane way, but also grazing cattle puts carbon in the soil. Feeding cows supplements reduces their methane emissions. And there's actually organizations and farms who are already starting to do that today. But of course that meat is more expensive, but it's better quality. And we don't have to have nearly as much of it as we normally eat. Eating more plants, eating more vegetables, eating more fruits, eating more legumes, eating more fish and seafood. It's better for our health. It's often better for our budget as well. 
but it's also better for climate change and pollution too. And so it's like, you know, there's these win-win-wins. Um, and food waste, food waste is a huge source mm-hmm. of heat trapping gas emissions. And I didn't even really put those pieces together myself until a couple of years ago when I found out that if you add up all the food waste in the world, and we, we waste about 50% of the food we produce, wow. that would make food waste alone like the fourth biggest emitter of heat trapping gases countrywide in the world. So what is food waste but lost money? You buy the food, you don't eat it, you throw it out. Mm-hmm. So I decided to change how I shopped. I realized that because I'd gotten very busy, I was just doing like a massive shopping trip every two weeks and I was loading up the whole fridge and the whole freezer with a lot of things that by the time I got to the really good stuff, the vegetables, the fresh fruit, the fresh seafood, as opposed to all the frozen and packaged stuff, right? Mm -hmm. By the time I got to the good stuff, half of it had gone bad and I was just throwing it out. So I decided I was going to completely redo how I did my shopping. I was going to make sure I always had two bags in the car and there's a good grocery store on my way to and from campus. So twice a week on the way home from campus, I would stop at the grocery store with only two bags, which is Mm -hmm. great, you know, just two bags instead of 12. I would buy a lot of fresh vegetables. I would buy a lot of fresh fruit and fresh food. I would buy, you know, a nice piece of fish um, or two and some shrimp because we get a lot of that here in Texas. And then my fridge ended up being half empty. It's half empty now. I can see everything in the fridge. I make a lot of soups. I can use all the vegetables. I got rid of the freezer and I put up racks where I can hang my clothes. And I mean, it's a win-win-win. I'm saving money. We're eating much more delicious food. My husband went out to a restaurant he hasn't been to in two years just yesterday, since the beginning of the pandemic. He's like, I used to love this restaurant. And now I realize it's pretty tasteless compared to the food we've been getting at home the last two years. I'm like, yes, (laughs) success. So, so. There's all kinds of things that we can do that improve our life and fill our buckets. And oh, they also help with climate change too. But the most important thing again that we can do is talk about it. And so Mm -hmm. that's really what the book is focused on is giving us all kinds of great stories we can share with people and encouraging news that we can share with people. So we can say, did you know? And we can share something really positive and constructive with people. So over the holidays, I'm actually taking the time to make uh, discussion questions to go with the book to make sure oh, good. to go with each section so people can use them in a book discussion um, group. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you could do if, you, if you're part of a book discussion group, if you enjoy reading just, or if you enjoy listening to something on Audible, you can put it on your car as you're you know, driving back and forth to school or, or on the public transport with, on your headphones. So, so that's what I was trying to do is just give people opportunities to talk about it, to have those conversations, because that's really how we can make a difference. And I would say, I would add that um, just yesterday on Twitter, mm-hmm. somebody said this to me. This is, this is from Suzanne. She said, um, I know a working mom who is concerned that she's too busy with everyday life to help fix climate change. I was thinking it would be helpful to have a go-to list for people like her, because I know from experience how she feels. And so here's mm-hmm. what I said to Suzanne. I said, yes, I completely agree. And in fact, that's why, not only did I write the book, but that's why I helped to create an entire organization for her called Science Moms, sciencemoms.com. And Science Moms has an Instagram account. So you can just follow them on Instagram and a Facebook page and a Twitter account. They have short videos you can watch and share. They have social media accounts to follow. They have one click actions to take and they have recommended reads for your kids. I said, moms don't have time to waste, and moms also know how to use their voice really well. So <laughs> moms have a very large superpower to bring to this fight, and we're doing it why we're doing it for our kids. So we're doing it to patch 
the whole in the biggest bucket we care about, which is our kids, their health, their well-being, their future, and their safety. This is all so beautiful. And it's just the kind of thing I was hoping that we could share with our listeners. So I will put um, all those links up, you know, to your book and to Science Moms and to a number of the other um, organizations you mentioned. I'll put that in our show notes. Mm -hmm. And I just want to thank you so much, Catherine, for taking the time to talk with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. As you can see, InterVarsity is very near and dear to my heart. <laughs> and <laughs> I think it's so important to bring both our hearts and our minds to the table because both of those are gifts from God. And when we put them together, um, that's how we change the world. From my own perspective, I find that Catherine's encouragement to talk about climate change feels really manageable and actionable. I've actually had a few conversations with family members and friends over the last couple of months about this, and it has been a delight to hear about how people are making conscious choices that care for the earth. Even our elder daughter caught the spirit of Catherine's book and has started initiating conversations in her school about starting a recycling program. Catherine Hayhoe is right. A lot of good can come just from talking about climate change. And if you listen all the way to the end of the credits in this episode, you'll hear an encouraging word on this topic from Catherine's book. All Shall Be Well is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even five or ten dollars a month. You can find out how to do this at give to IV slash the well or through our donation link at the well. And let me close this interview with a reading from Catherine's book from page 32 that I think captures the spirit of her work. How you connect with others doesn't have to fit any mold, example, or pattern. Whoever you are, you are the perfect person to talk about climate change with others who share your interests and concerns. <laughs>